A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, December 7th, 2022, the 686th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, by all means, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the social media, the writing, and, of course, the merch site at linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's get started with a couple of mainstream stories that simply have to be mentioned. And the first, of course, is the election last night in Georgia. As we are told at this point, Raphael Warnock has beaten Herschel Walker in a totally legitimate election because people just love Democrats, especially in Georgia. And when we're talking about unavoidable mainstream narratives, we might as well get the pure mainstreamiest mainstream stories in there. And so let's go to CNN. Five takeaways from Georgia's Senate runoff. Raphael Warnock remains undefeated. That's right. Raphael Warnock has stolen four elections in 25 months. It's unbelievable. The initial election for Senate on November 3rd, 2020, the big night of the 2020 election steal, the runoff on January 5th, 2021, the midterms on November 8th, 2022, and then last night in the runoff for those midterms. Four elections, 25 months. Pretty amazing. After being pushed to another runoff in November, the Democrat asked voters in Georgia to put him over the top 
one more time in December. And once again, they delivered. Since November 2020, Warnock has been the leading vote getter in four consecutive Georgia Senate elections. But because of state law requiring candidates to get a majority to win a general election, Warnock had to double the feat in both his 2020 special election and his 2022 bid for a full six-year term. His victory in this head-to-head contest with Republican nominee Herschel Walker means Democrats will add to their already secured Senate majority with 51 seats to the GOP's 49 and solidify the peach state as a potentially decisive 2024 presidential battleground. How does this make Georgia a potentially decisive presidential battleground in any way that it wasn't already? Is Georgia just a blue state now? No, it's very purple because Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams by eight points. And then four weeks later, Georgia decided that they really did want a Democrat as senator. All of this is so weird. Around the nation, the Republicans won the popular vote. Not that it's a real thing. I understand. There's no national popular vote. But Millions more Americans turned out to vote for Republicans than turned out to vote for Democrats this year. So that is a rejection of the fake president and his party and the regime as a whole. But in Georgia, after choosing a Republican governor and seeing the results of the elections around the nation, what we were told about the elections, who won, who lost and why, Voters in Georgia decided, you know what, maybe there aren't enough Democrats still in power. Let's get one more. And they decided that Raphael Warnock was that guy. In fact, Herschel Walker was so bad that Van Jones and other people on CNN actually called him an insult to the black community. Extremely racist, you might say. The 51st seat gives the Democrats a true majority. Democrats already clinched control of the Senate with 50 seats secured last month, which would allow Vice President Kamala Harris to cast the tie-breaking vote as she does now. But winning a 51st seat, thanks to Warnock's victory Tuesday, comes with important benefits for the Democrats running the Senate and for President Joe Biden's administration. The party will now enter 2023 with a true Senate majority, one that won't require the power-sharing agreement that has been in place over the last two years in an evenly divided chamber. That outright majority means that Democrats will have the majority on committees, allowing them to advance Biden's nominees more easily. For example, the Senate Judiciary Committee, with its 22 members, will shift from a split of 11 Democrats and 11 Republicans to 12 Democrats and 10 Republicans. That removes a GOP procedural mechanism to slow down the confirmation of Biden's judicial nominees. And here is another interesting pitfall that they've avoided. Democrat leaders, meanwhile, face a reduced risk that a single senator can hold its priorities hostage since the party can now afford to lose a vote. Harris, who already cast the third most tie-breaking votes of any vice president and the most since John Calhoun nearly 200 years ago, would be less tied to Capitol Hill. It's also an early boost to Democrats ahead of a 2024 election in which the party will have to defend several seats in deep red states, including West Virginia and Montana, to maintain its majority. So you see that 
They're worried about Joe Manchin in 2024. So now Joe Manchin can vote with the Republicans sometimes and Democrats can still get 51. Isn't that amazing? CNN just comes right out and says it. They can push through Biden's judicial nominees and they'll have more control of Senate hearings. Isn't that wonderful? Exactly what the country wanted. The Democrats having all these kinds of powers. So now Manchin and Tester can vote with the Republicans and it can just be all covered up like the same way that Mitch McConnell will let 10 or 12 or 15 Republicans go ahead and vote with the Democrats and keep everyone else back. All of this is just a political calculation on what they can get away with, how much they're able to support the agenda of the regime and how much they're able to shield their members from accountability for their votes when it comes to their voters back home. None of these people are actually there to represent their constituents. CNN says Georgia is a swing state until further notice. You hear that, everybody? It's ours. It's purple now, and it's going to stay purple for as long as we want. The Democratic turnout machine strikes again. This is your third takeaway. After the 2020 election, Georgia Republicans passed a controversial law that, among other things, reduced the amount of time between a November election and potential runoff, creating a condensed timeline that narrowed the window for mail-in voters and reduced the number of days to vote early in person. It didn't matter. The Democrat turnout machine in Georgia over the past four weeks With a running start that goes back years and owes heavily to the groundwork by Stacey Abrams and her allies, once again delivered in a hotly contested race that attracted tens of millions of dollars in spending by the campaigns and national organizations. And I was talking about this on Badlands Daily with uh, with John this morning. It's such an odd way that they frame things now. The turnout machine. That's what did it. Not the quality of the candidate, not the desires of the voters. It was the turnout machine and the tens of millions of dollars that were flooded into Georgia to ensure this outcome. What did that money get spent on? You know, they have always told us that it's television ads. They didn't spend tens of millions of dollars on television ads. That's ridiculous. There's absolutely no way that's true. So what did they spend the money on? Were they paying ballot mules? Were they paying off election judges? Were they hiring election workers from Stacey Abrams temp agency happy faces as they did in 2020? CNN says turnout was especially robust in key Democratic strongholds, including larger metro areas and the suburbs that have shaded blue following former President Donald Trump's election in 2016. Six years later, Georgia is not only a symbol of Trump's apparent drag on the GOP, but a model for Democrats seeking to capitalize on it. Got it. Trump has destroyed the GOP so much that there are new voters in Georgia's large metro areas. Isn't that amazing? Democrats just keep creating thousands upon thousands of new voters in Georgia. Metro areas. My, 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 what an incredible turnout operation. Donald Trump fumbles another Senate seat. You see that? Donald Trump has messed up everything for the Republicans. Sure, 93% of his endorsed candidates won. 
But the Democrats still stole some seats around the country, which means Trump lost. No matter what happened last night, Trump was going to be the loser. If Walker won, Walker would have won through Brian Kemp's amazing operation in Georgia. That is so amazing, except when you run into a candidate like Raphael Warnock, who's just a buzzsaw. I mean, everybody loves Raphael Warnock. Even though no one really knows who he is and he's never accomplished anything, oh, Georgia just loves him. That is the only explanation for how Brian Kemp's unbelievable operation in Georgia could have possibly just fallen flat in this way. Oh, Republican voters in Georgia, they just couldn't get out there and vote for Herschel Walker. They were just so upset that Donald Trump, would recruit and support someone like Herschel Walker. So they just stayed home. They said, nah, let's just leave it to the communists. And we're supposed to believe that Georgia Republicans are just like that now. Georgia is such a purple state. If Walker won, Trump lost. Walker lost. (laughs) It's Trump's fault again. He should have never nominated him in the first place. That's the whole point Van Jones was making. He's such a bad candidate that he's actually an insult to the black community. And finally, finally, Kemp can't convince the ticket splitters. Once again, Donald Trump was just too toxic. And so as the days wind on, we will begin hearing stories about how this Raphael Warnock victory happened And a lot of those stories will include obvious, rampant, widespread election fraud. We saw vote flipping on television last night, as always occurs in these situations. I was actually kind of vaguely paying attention to Fox News in the evening as their election coverage kind of overlapped Tucker and then continued on into Hannity's hour. I was kind of just killing time waiting to jump into a Twitter space with uh, Garrett Ziegler and some of the Marco Polo crew. Garrett's doing a uh, Inside the Biden Laptop series on Twitter spaces. Last night was the first installment of that, and there will be some more. And so I had an opportunity to ask him some questions. You can go find that on Marco Polo's Twitter if you like. It's Marco Polo 501C3 on Twitter. That's their handle. So I'm kind of listening to this coverage and it's basically just the host going back to Bill Hemmer, always sending it to Bill Hemmer with his big special television screen that he can touch in the pictures and the numbers change. And he talks at length about how the pictures and numbers are changing, but that also they might change back the other direction or they might keep changing in this same direction. And he'll say, well, you know, there's a lot of red over there and a bunch of blue over here. And that red, some of that red might turn blue and some of that blue might turn red. And it's also possible that the red stays red and the blue gets even bluer. It's hard to say right now what's going to happen as these votes come in in real time. We're watching all of this immediately as it develops. Oh, it's amazing. What an event. The red might change to blue. The blue might change to red. Both of them might stay the same. Both of them might be different. Who's to say? Now let's focus on shapes. This is a circle. This is a square. 
Sometimes a square and a circle can be red or blue, and sometimes they might change. Now, that's probably enough. Let's just call 10 minutes of nap time back to you, Sean Hannity. And then Sean Hannity will have Marco Rubio and Kevin McCarthy on, and they'll talk about how safe and secure Florida's election system is. Ooh, it's a model for the whole nation. Did you see how well Republicans did there? It can only be because of the great Republican governor and champion of the world, Ron DeSantis. He fixed everything. You see, Florida used to have the really bad elections. Remember when Bush versus Gore was happening and there were the hanging chads, but then they fixed it and then they had more problems and they fixed the problems again. Now Florida's perfect. They're a model for the nation. And Kevin McCarthy comes out, well, we got to find more ballots somewhere. I guess we're just going to have to really put our heads together and figure out where all these ballots are going. Oh, where are the ballots? Clown show. And that is what they hammer into the head of Fox News's audience. And that's why people who would ostensibly be on our side and who would be our allies are so confused about everything and so unbelievably clueless about the basic aspects of our election system, including how overwhelmingly fraudulent it all is. And speaking of overwhelmingly fraudulent things the regime does, yesterday it was announced in the run-up to this runoff election We needed a big distraction. We needed something to focus on. We needed something to make the communists feel good. Trump organization found guilty on all counts of criminal tax fraud. So that kind of sounds bad right away. Oh, my God. Trump's been convicted. Maybe the walls really are closing in again for the first time. But the actual story itself doesn't really bring you to that conclusion which means all the little commie hearts around the nation are breaking. A Manhattan jury has found two Trump organization companies guilty on multiple charges of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records connected to a 15-year scheme to defraud tax authorities by failing to report and pay taxes on compensation for top executives. The Trump Corp and Trump Payroll Corp were found guilty on all charges they faced. Donald Trump and his family were not charged in this case. But the former president was mentioned repeatedly during the trial by prosecutors about his connection to the benefits doled out to certain executives, including company funded apartments, car leases and personal expenses. So not only wasn't Donald Trump convicted, he wasn't even part of the case. But the prosecutors mentioned him during the trial. So CNN is now reporting that the prosecutors have mentioned him. Prosecutors can mention anything they want. The idea that they wouldn't somehow mention Donald Trump throughout the case on a case related to Donald Trump. Well, that would be shocking. The fact that they mentioned it during the case is utterly meaningless. The Trump organization could face a maximum of $1.61 million in fines when sentenced in mid-January. The company is not at risk of being dismantled because there is no mechanism under New York law that would dissolve the company. However, a felony conviction could impact its ability to do business or obtain loans or contracts. So that's the story. The story is nothing 
But since it's better to present the story as actually something that will make the audience believe that the walls are closing in again, they have to repeat all the old slogans. The guilty verdict comes as Trump is under scrutiny by federal and state prosecutors for his handling of classified documents, the effort to overturn the 2020 election results, and the accuracy of the Trump Organization's business records and financial statements. Those are all completely unrelated issues, but all narratives that CNN's child-brained readership is aware of. They believe that the walls are closing in on Trump for every single narrative and slogan. And so they just repeat them all over again to elicit the same emotional reaction so that their readers will feel that in its totality, all of this stuff means Donald Trump really is a criminal and we're going to get him. The walls are closing in again. He is also facing a $250 million civil lawsuit from the New York Attorney General alleging he and his adult children were involved in a decade-long fraud. The Attorney General is seeking to permanently bar them from serving as an officer or director of a company in New York State, among other penalties. Trump Organization attorneys said they plan to appeal, and they will appeal, and the ridiculous conviction will almost definitely be overturned. All of this is nonsense, but CNN does not care because when CNN's child-brained readership takes all of these slogans and goes out and repeats each and every one so that it has the effect in its totality of painting Trump as a bad guy who's done a bunch of illegal things, that's all that's necessary. That's all they need. You run into someone in a social setting this weekend and some communist says, oh, did you hear they just convicted Trump? And you're like, well, you know, they didn't actually convict Trump. They had a kind of, you know, bullshit case in New York and they found parts of Trump's organization guilty of very minor crimes that don't really carry any big penalty and it doesn't implicate Trump in any way. Well, then they just rattle off these three or four or five different slogans that they've memorized. And you say, yeah, but all of those are the same thing. They're not real cases. There's no evidence of a crime there. They're never going to get Trump with any of them and nothing's going to change. And they say, oh, well, how can you say that Trump's not evil? He's a criminal. Look at all these crimes. And once again, you're forced to either subject yourself to this kind of communist nonsense or simply say, okay, commie, good luck with that. I guess the walls really are closing in again. Be sure to hit me up when Trump is finally sentenced to prison as everyone knows he will be. Okay, communist, everybody, you're right. Everybody knows Trump's guilty. Okay, okay, right, right. Hillary Clinton, I know, all good, it's fine. Trump's the real criminal. It's not Hillary Clinton. It's not Joe Biden for selling our country out to our foreign adversaries. And all the evidence is right on the laptop. You're right. It's not Hunter Biden. Nothing like that. It's not Barack Obama. It could never, ever, ever be Barack Obama. None of the people who have sold out our country to the global communists over a series of decades are ever going to be in trouble. But Donald Trump. Donald Trump is certainly going to prison for the rest of his life for some things the New York attorney general made up. Got it, Kami. 
So with that nonsense out of the way, I want to just play a brief clip from Colonel Douglas McGregor, who gives a very succinct explanation of the state of play in Ukraine right now. And it's probably a good time to get all of that in perspective as Volodymyr Zelensky has been named Time's Man of the Year. Someone put together side by side the time cover from today, or maybe it was yesterday with Zelensky on it, and the similar Time Man of the Year cover with Adolf Hitler on the cover. And it's worth noticing that Time has now celebrated twice as Man of the Year men who are leading Nazi armies on behalf of the global cabal. It's pretty overt, pretty blatant propaganda. And you have to wonder what's with their affinity for Nazi leaders. But here's Colonel McGregor. And now we're looking at a force of almost 700,000 troops surrounding Ukraine. Uh, the large probability of offensives beginning sometime over the next two, three, four, five, six, eight weeks, whenever the ground freezes completely and uh, the Russians judge their force to be ready. And they will move in and they will finish off this Ukrainian state. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, the regime in, in Kiev is likely to be annihilated along with the remainder of its armed forces, which over time have become more and more radicalized to the point where now uh, these uh, so-called Azov Nazis and their supporters are not only uh, murdering Russians, they're murdering their own people. And as we saw recently, they actually set out to kill Polish troops that were serving in Ukrainian uniform in Ukraine. This thing is, is gone badly. The Russians have, have been running out of munitions, I guess, from day one, according to the propaganda, and the Ukrainians are still on their victory march. Well, that's all nonsense. The Russians are now fully mobilizing to complete this task. The biggest mistake we could make in the West is to involve ourselves. We've done enough damage. And I think what we're going to see is, is exactly what I described, the total destruction of this uh, rump Ukrainian state. Now, what happens afterwards? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm quite confident the Russians do not want to remain in Western Ukraine. That is the Ukrainian heartland. That's where the real Ukrainians live. Russians aren't interested in that. The Russians will likely be, you know, withdraw to the Dnieper River. But as far as Kherson is concerned, Kherson is part of this thing called Novorossiya, which was always Russian. Odessa was founded by Russians, although you could give some credit to Germans, who were certainly in service to Catherine the Great, who had a role in building a lot of these cities, along with some Englishmen, Scots, and Dutch, let's be frank. But the bottom line is it was always Russian. It was never, quote unquote, Ukrainian. Ukrainian heartland is further north above the Black Sea. The Russians are going to recapture Kherson, and the Russians are going to retake Kharkov. These are historically Russian cities. But the Russians are not interested in the rest of it. I just hope that the Ukrainians allow for some sort of emergence of a new government with a new, fresh attitude so that we can bring this thing to an end, because frankly, we've let the world down in Washington. This is the first time uh, in our history, certainly since the Second World War, that we have not immediately intervened to end a conflict that would involve Russia. We have always worked tirelessly to find a way out of conflict with Russia. Never before have we had a government that sought conflict with Russia. And the tragedy, of course, is that we've subsidized and built up this tremendous force in eastern Ukraine that was first destroyed, and we continue to build up whatever is left. And the principal victims are, of course, Ukrainians. They're dying in great numbers. Poles need to understand this. The way forward is not war with Russia. 
So the man of the year's major accomplishments are doing green screen videos for the world, appearing in the Congress or Parliament of nations around the world, begging for money, leading a Nazi army, laundering that money, and losing the war he's leading with the Nazi army. While that Nazi army kills Ukraine's own citizens and even kills Polish soldiers who were fighting on behalf of Ukraine. So real man of the year kind of stuff. Now let's go to the Twitter files. Yesterday, it seemed briefly like we might get another round of Twitter file drops that never materialized. There was a holdup in the release of all these files, and that holdup came after discovering that Twitter's deputy general counsel, James Baker, had been, quote unquote, vetting the Twitter files before they were dropped. This is the New York Post yesterday. Elon Musk fires Twitter lawyer James Baker over suppression of documents on Hunter Biden's story. Elon Musk has fired Twitter's deputy general counsel, James Baker, over his alleged suppression of internal documents about blocking the Post's Hunter Biden laptop expose. In light of concerns about Baker's possible role in suppression of information important to the public dialogue, he was exited from Twitter today, Musk tweeted Tuesday. Musk added that he questioned Baker before his firing about the events surrounding the laptop suppression scandal and that the lawyer's explanation was, quote unquote, unconvincing. Baker, a former top FBI lawyer, was discovered to be secretly vetting the internal Twitter documents before they could be reviewed by journalists, leading to a delay in the release of more material related to the company's censorship scandal. On Friday, the first installment of the Twitter files was published here. We expected to publish more over the weekend. Many wondered why there was a delay. Independent journalist Matt Taibbi tweeted on Tuesday. We can now tell you part of the reason why. On Tuesday, Twitter Deputy General Counsel and former FBI General Counsel Jim Baker was fired. Among the reasons, vetting the first batch of Twitter files without knowledge of new management, Taibbi added. Taibbi further revealed that former Wall Street Journal and New York Times writer Barry Weiss is also involved in reviewing the social media giant's internal documents related to the Post's Hunter Biden story, and that it was she who discovered Baker's involvement, which Musk was unaware of, according to Taibbi. The process for producing the Twitter files involved delivery to two journalists via a lawyer close to new management. However, after the initial batch, things became complicated, Taibbi said. He added that Weiss discovered that the person in charge of releasing the files was someone named Jim. When she called to ask Jim's last name, the answer came back, Jim Baker. Taibbi added in a tweet, my jaw hit the floor, says Weiss. He said the first batch of files both reporters received was marked Spectra Baker emails. Baker is a controversial figure, Taibbi wrote. He has been something of a zealot of FBI controversies dating back to 2016, from the Steele dossier to the Alpha server mess. He resigned in 2018 after an investigation into leaks to the press. So he was a key player in the Russiagate hoax and the fake Steele dossier hoax, heavily involved in the FBI's attempted takedown of first a candidate for president 
and then a duly elected sitting president. That's James Baker. And he went from being a corrupt federal official for the FBI to a corrupt deputy general counsel at Twitter. The news that Baker was reviewing the Twitter files surprised everyone involved, to say the least. New Twitter chief Elon Musk acted quickly to exit Baker Tuesday, Taibbi tweeted. Baker was previously general counsel for the FBI under former director James Comey and a key figure in the bureau's investigation into false claims of collusion between Russia and Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. And again, it's real good that the New York Post is actually saying false claims of collusion because the claims are false. But usually in mainstream media reporting, they just fail to mention that the claims are false. They present the claims as they've always been presented and then leave some doubt as to whether the claim is true or false, because they know that some people still believe in Trump-Russia collusion, and they don't want those people to get upset and think that they're a biased source. During his time at the FBI, Baker worked with fiercely anti-Trump FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. After leaving the Bureau in 2018, Baker reportedly found himself under criminal investigation for allegedly leaking materials to reporters. Baker has stood by his conduct while at the FBI and with regard to the Russia probe. And of course he did. This summer, Baker was also a star witness for special counsel John Durham in his case against former Hillary Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman, who was found not guilty in May of lying to the FBI. In addition, Baker has been linked to Mother Jones reporter David Korn, who broke the news of the existence of the Steele dossier, compiled by British ex-spy Christopher Steele and loaded with unproven claims about Trump. Baker allegedly communicated with Korn in the weeks leading up to the November 2016 presidential election before Korn reported on the existence of the dossier on October 31st, 2016. Twitter tapped Baker to help lead its legal team in June 2020, a month after the social media company generated controversy for labeling two Trump tweets claiming that mail-in ballots will lead to, quote, a rigged election as promoting misinformation. And let's just flash back to Monday's episode and remember James Baker's role in the censorship and the handling of the censorship of the New York Post's story about Hunter Biden. In the email shared by Taibbi, Baker wrote, I support the conclusion that we need more facts to assess whether the materials were hacked. At this stage, however, it is reasonable for us to assume that they may have been and that caution is warranted. There are some facts that indicate that the materials may have been hacked, while there are others indicating that the computer was either abandoned and or the owner consented to allow the repair shop to access it for at least some purposes. We simply need more information. And it should have been clear, quite clear to somebody like Jim Baker at that point, that what he was saying was false. And that's why he presents Two ideas. One was the truth that the laptop was left at the computer repair shop and it was left for so long that it became the property of the computer repair shop owner. But he also said it was reasonable to assume that the materials may have been hacked, even though they weren't, because that was already Twitter's position. And by saying, well, maybe it was true, we don't know, that provides some 
justification for their move. They can simply say that they were just censoring the material out of an abundance of caution, out of the slight chance that maybe it really was hacked, even though Twitter's executives made up the hacking story from seemingly nothing. At least that's what the Twitter files drops indicate. Now, the narrative has been kind of building over the past few days. People are beginning to question why the Twitter files drops are being handled this way. People are getting a little bit annoyed, a little bit frustrated that the information hasn't just been brought out. They're wondering why it's not just being given to the public so that independent journalists can do with it what they will. Even Twitter's former CEO, Jack Dorsey, is wondering that. He responded to an Elon Musk tweet from a couple of days ago. Elon said on December 2nd, tune in for episode two of the Twitter files tomorrow. And on December 3rd, he said, looks like we will need another day or so. So now it's the 7th. Jack Dorsey says, if the goal is transparency to build trust, why not just release everything without filter and let people judge for themselves, including all discussions around current and future actions? Make everything public now. Now, that is a pretty bold statement for Jack Dorsey. One would have to assume from that statement that Jack Dorsey doesn't believe he is exposed in these Twitter file drops. And that's possible. Maybe Jack Dorsey handled himself perfectly throughout this time, and he is not the person responsible for all of these problems. We know what Vidya Gotti and Yoel Roth were doing. We have the proof there. We know what Jim Baker was doing and what he was attempting to cover up. Any involvement from the FBI in this Twitter situation. And we know that Alexander McGillivray, who was an Obama administration official and then went to Twitter and was responsible for Vidya Gotti being hired into her role at Twitter and is now the chief technology officer in the illegitimate Biden administration, was somewhere in the mix of all this as well. So it's possible that Jack Dorsey just wasn't in the mix for any of this and that he is clean. So was he negligent about what the company for which he was CEO was actually doing? Or did the censorship regime at Twitter operate secretly without his knowledge intentionally? I'm certainly not in a position to say for sure at this point. I just don't think that we're there. But we at least need to stay open to the possibility because it seems like things are trending in that direction. And the news on Twitter censorship keeps pouring out. Over the weekend, evidence emerged from the lawsuit brought by Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry and Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, that lawsuit over Twitter censorship about COVID information. It came out that Katie Hobbs, as Secretary of State in Arizona, was working through a Twitter portal to have Twitter and other social media websites take down what she described as election misinformation, which was actually just true but inconvenient information about Arizona's elections. And of course, we know that that portal was available to members of the National Association of Secretaries of State. Judicial Watch posted back up their work from early 2021, work that I have cited on this show many times 
because the FOIA document release that they published showed my face in a post that was censored by the California Secretary of State. So we know that this is happening. We know that secretaries of state around the country in the National Association of Secretaries of State were censoring election information from the citizens of their states. That is the state government working hand in hand with the social media companies to violate the First Amendment. This has always been true. It has always been in evidence. I've had that evidence for 18, 19 months now. But as I've talked about before, I don't mind the reruns. Sometimes the stories need to come around again and again. And this is that story coming around again. The Judicial Watch information was treated as if it was brand new. It certainly was not. But these portals existed at all of the social media companies and a whole lot of different people and organizations had access to those portals. We are only beginning to scratch the surface on all of that. America First Legal is attempting to scratch that surface quite a bit more. They published this last night announcing some new discoveries in their lawsuit. The headline is AFL lawsuit uncovers more damning CDC documents revealing Twitter's partner support portal for COVID-19 related censorship and the U.S. government's advancement of social inoculation against the infodemic. And these are their actual words. Today, America First Legal released the fourth set of shocking documents obtained from litigation against the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, revealing further concrete evidence of collusion between the CDC and social media companies to censor free speech and silence the public square under the government's label of misinformation. So again, when evidence like this is in play, as it has been, all the concerns about Twitter as a private company go right out the window as do the Section 230 concerns. No part of government, no government agency is allowed to violate the free speech rights of citizens, and they are not allowed to delegate that responsibility to other organizations, private companies. They cannot do that. The private company at that point is acting on behalf of the state to violate the First Amendment. They are working together government and corporations working together to violate the rights of the citizens is definitionally fascism. And that is what they're doing. This nearly 600 page release of documents contains new appalling information. Among these include the fact that Twitter ran a partner support portal for government employees and other stakeholders to submit posts that it would remove or flag as misinformation on its platform. Documents obtained by AFL show Twitter enrolling one government employee through their personal Twitter account into this portal. We know from other publicly related documents that Facebook has copied this approach for election related censorship. And of course, Dr. Shiva's case went deep into this a couple of years ago. This production also reveals that the U.S. government was actively working to socially inoculate, socially inoculate or brainwashing, the public against anything that threatened its narrative. It did so by using aligned big tech corporations to monitor and manipulate users for the purposes of censoring unapproved information and pushing government propaganda. For example, 
Facebook sent written materials to the CDC in which it bragged about censoring more than 16 million pieces of content containing opinions or information the U.S. government wanted suppressed. Finally, the documents reveal the CDC was collaborating with UNICEF, WHO, and IFCN member and leading civil organization Mafindo to mitigate disinformation. Mafindo is a Facebook third-party fact-checking partner based in Indonesia that is funded by Google. Now, don't let the fact that you understand all of this already and that you're familiar with it and that it has been in evidence for a long time diminish your sense of how big and important this is. This is government colluding with big tech, the organizations that know everything about you, where you are all the time, what you think about pretty much anything. They monitor your conversations. They know how old you are. They know where you were born, where you grew up. They know where you went to high school. They know what sports you played. They know who your friends are. They know where you went to college. They know your religion. They know your job. They know all your jobs. They probably know how much money you make. They know what businesses you visit. They know what people you see. They can track changes in your behavior, whether it's your beliefs or your spending habits or where you go throughout the day. They know everything about you. And the government is colluding with those organizations with the specific intent of violating your First Amendment rights. That is something that must be understood. People need to understand it. They need to make sure that everyone around them understands it, and they need to stand up to all of this. This period will only end once people know what actually happened. What is clear is that the United States government, big tech platforms, and international organizations were fully entangled in an intricate campaign to violate the First Amendment, to silence the American people, and to censor dissenting views. So they worked with international organizations. And one of the things they did was interfere in American elections. So again, elements of the American government, elements of corporate America, all sorts of different entities and organizations colluded with big tech and international organizations to interfere in American elections. Is this the sort of thing that could trigger Executive Order 13848? I would certainly think so. AFL's first release of documents revealed the explicit collusion between the CDC and big tech to censor what the Biden administration deemed misinformation and push covert COVID-19 propaganda. AFL's second release built the evidentiary record showing that the CDC specifically sent Facebook and Twitter specific posts to take down, throttle, censor, or flag. AFL's third release revealed that the CDC's mask guidance policies for school children were being driven by political polling by liberal dark money group, the Kaiser Family Foundation, rather than science. And then they continue on listing some of the egregious examples from the documents, and those are well worth sharing. In August 2021, the head of Google's news lab for the Asia-Pacific region, Irene J. Liu, emailed CDC vaccine confidence strategist Elizabeth Wilhelm to invite her to the APAC Trusted Media Summit. 
CDC's vaccine confidence strategist then emailed the event planner for Google's APAC Trusted Media Summit, noting her excitement over being invited to what she referred to as the coolest misinformation fighting speakeasy. So they're like in a little club. She's honored to be invited where all of the best misinformation people will discuss the joys of censorship over cocktails, apparently. She was then invited to the summit to give a keynote addressing how the CDC was working with WHO and other international organizations to address a so-called infodemic and using social inoculation to mitigate it. Here's exactly what she wrote in the email. COVID-19 misinformation, immunization attitudes and acceptance of a future SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. We will be using human-centered design approaches to co-develop a social inoculation intervention designed to increase self-efficacy in identifying, addressing, and mitigating the infodemic. These people are crazy. On May 10th, 2021, Todd O'Boyle at Twitter recommended Carol Crawford at CDC to enroll in Twitter's partner support portal which he described as the best way to get a spreadsheet like this reviewed. And the spreadsheet he's referring to, of course, is takedown requests, censorship requests. He also indicated that tweets sent by Carol had either already been actioned, and if they had not, he would ask the team to review. On May 11th, 2021, the CDC official enrolled her personal Twitter account into Twitter's partner support portal, which allowed, quote, a special expedited reporting flow in the Twitter help center. So now this person at CDC has her special privileges on her own personal Twitter account, and she can just conduct censorship operations from there. Isn't that great? Facebook and meta findings. Included in this release of documents is a Facebook slide deck that appears to show Facebook acting as an editor and content moderator, boasting about its extensive censorship work to the CDC. Specifically, Facebook brags, we remove claims about the existence or severity of COVID-19, including claims that COVID-19 is no more dangerous than the common cold or flu. And of course, COVID-19 is not more dangerous than the common flu. It just isn't. That's what the statistics have shown the whole time. Since the very, very beginning, there was no reason, no reason whatsoever to believe that COVID was more dangerous than the flu. And there still is not. It simply is not more deadly than the flu. And you can say, yeah, but you always talk about how all the COVID numbers are complete and total nonsense. And you're right. They are because the tests don't work. But the flu numbers are complete and total nonsense, too. So if these are the numbers that they're giving, then we can only compare these numbers. And these numbers do quite clearly show that COVID-19 is not more dangerous than the flu. In its widely debunked vaccine hoaxes section, Facebook even claims that, quote, Natural immunity is safer than vaccine acquired immunity. And they're saying that that statement is a hoax. That's the hoax. That's the false claim that natural immunity is safer than vaccine acquired immunity said, despite widespread knowledge at the time that the vaccines did not prevent transmission. And what we now know 
More vaccinated people are dying now than unvaccinated. Here's the list of vaccine hoaxes. These are the things that you're not allowed to say. Vaccines cause autism. Vaccines cause sudden infant death syndrome. Oh, really? They don't? Well, how did sudden adult death syndrome just magically pop into the world over the last year or so? That's not the vaccine. It's not. Oh, no, I know. It's not the vaccine. Yeah, it's climate change. It's climate change that caused that. Vaccines cause the disease against which they are meant to protect or cause the person to be more likely to get the disease. Those things are both true when it comes to the COVID vaccine. And that has been overwhelmingly proven again and again and again. Vaccines or their ingredients are deadly, toxic, poisonous, harmful, or dangerous. We have seen once again that that is also true. Natural immunity is safer than vaccine-acquired immunity. True. It is dangerous to get several vaccines in a short period of time, even if that timing is medically recommended. That is dangerous. Sometimes it's dangerous just to get the one. Vaccines are not effective to prevent the disease against which they purport to protect. The COVID-19 vaccine is not in any way effective in preventing COVID-19. We know that that is an established fact agreed upon by the CDC and even the mainstream media. Not that they don't say the opposite as well. They certainly do. But nonetheless, all of this is true. But the last two hoaxes, acquiring measles cannot cause death. You see, it requires additional information and or context. You can't just go around saying measles isn't deadly. What do you think it is? Monkeypox? I mean, mpox? Because they decided the word monkeypox was racist? What? Also, vitamin C is as effective as vaccines in preventing diseases for which vaccines exist. Well, is that true? Finally, Facebook boasts of removing over 16 million posts on Facebook and Instagram, including over 2 million between February and May 19th, 2021. So once again, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a system. This is what the system is designed to do. You can see and understand every individual piece of that system and what it is designed to do. You can see it in operation. The government has a portal to the social media companies and through that portal, they send everything they want censored and then the social media companies do it. The company and the government are colluding to oppress the citizens of America and directly intentionally violate their First Amendment right to free speech. This is a willful violation of the most basic principles upon which our nation is founded. The fact that the government is involved in crimes against America means this is a much bigger thing, and we need to understand it that way. Everyone involved in this needs to be held accountable, including the people in government, whether it's state governments and the Secretary of State's offices the CDC, the FBI, members of the Biden campaign, doesn't matter who. Everyone on both ends of this problem must be held accountable. And we'll see if the GOP House actually follows through with their intent to do that once they come into office in the new year. Catherine Harridge from CBS reported this morning that House GOP incoming oversight chairman James Comer sent letters to Vidya Gotti and Yoel Roth and James Baker 
to testify at a public hearing. So let's hope that happens and let's hope some people pay attention to it. I have a feeling that by that time, at least a month from now, we are going to know a whole lot more about what these people have done and maybe their testimony will actually be productive instead of, as we're accustomed to, a useless limited hangout where members of Congress and senators create television clips that will make them more popular for a few days, but ultimately accomplish nothing. But how come nothing ever gets done about any of this? And where is the media? The media's responsibility is to tell people what's going on. And once people know what's going on, then they can react. Then they can demand action from their representatives who they elect to represent them. That's how the system's supposed to work. It doesn't work that way, of course. Why doesn't it work that way, though? Why is the media so irresponsible? Well, this is from NTD News today. Billionaire George Soros was the biggest political donor this past midterm election, spending 120... Billionaire George Soros was the biggest political donor this past midterm election, spending $129 million on Democratic candidates. But how much has he spent on media organizations around the globe? A new study looks at just that. A watchdog organization called the Media Research Center recently released part one of their three-part research on George Soros' influence on global media. The study finds that Soros has used his charities, including the Open Society Foundations, to finance at least 253 media organizations around the world. The founder of the Media Research Center, Brent Bozell, spoke about the findings on Fox News on Monday. Everywhere you look, you know, when you look at the Pointer Institute, the big fact checker, mm -hmm. it's funded by George Soros. How many people know that when you go on Google and you look up something, immediately you get Wikipedia funded by George Soros? The media organizations include Project Syndicate, a publisher of commentaries that has received over $1.5 million, the Pointer Institute's International Fact-Checking Network, which has received almost $500,000, and National Public Radio, which has received $600,000. Bozell says he believes Soros is a dangerous man. Here's his comment on Soros's ultimate goal. George Soros was asked that question, and his answer, what, you know, what, what do you want? His answer to me is chilling. It chills me to the bone. His answer was, I want to change the arc of history. That's how ambitious this man is. The Media Research Center says it will release parts two and three of its research later. They will detail exactly how much money Soros has spent on media organizations and which corporate media received Soros's money. Oh, it's that again. It's pretty impressive the amount of power and control one man on behalf of a group that doesn't include too many people can seize for himself and his allies after purchasing the entirety of media, essentially. It's the sort of power where you can just completely distort reality. You can invert everything. It's the sort of power that might allow someone who in their younger days was personally responsible and admits personal responsibility, in fact, is proud of his personal responsibility in rounding up his own neighbors 
to have their property seized and to be put on Nazi trains. He'll admit that sort of thing on 60 Minutes. And then almost 80 years later, we find ourselves in a reality where criticizing this man who destroys countries, destroys the currency of countries and wants to bend the arc of history after having spent his youth putting his neighbors on Nazi trains, criticizing that man is now anti-Semitic. In fact, I was told that yesterday on Twitter. And so I shared the video of George Soros admitting to loading his neighbors on Nazi trains. And then I was just called a fascist because that's how things work now. You can actually accomplish this sort of total inversion of reality when you control all the means of information. You put out propaganda, you silence all dissent through censorship, and you create the world in the perception of people as you want it to exist in whatever way will ultimately benefit you. And that's exactly what we've seen happening. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the rain.
It's hell!